Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby, Tennessee, a podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. TIPQC exists to improve health outcomes for mothers and infants in Tennessee through our quality collaborative that will identify opportunities to optimize maternal and infant outcomes across our state and is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. The Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast is designed for medical professionals and for patients and families across the state. We will focus on all aspects of the perinatal period with special attention to reducing our maternal mortality rate. This podcast is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Welcome to the Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative of Perinatal Quality Care. I am Danielle Tate, a maternal fetal medicine specialist and the maternal medical director of TIPQC. Joining us today is Dr. Veronica Gillespie-Bell. Dr. Gillespie-Bell is a board-certified OBGYN and an associate professor for Ochsner Health in New Orleans. Additionally, she serves as the director of quality for women's services for the Ochsner Health System. She earned her medical degree from Meharry Medical College School of Medicine and completed her residency training at Ochsner Health System. She has a Master of Applied Science degree in healthcare quality and patient safety from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Additionally, she has received a certification in diversity and inclusion from Cornell University. Dr. Gillespie Bell is also the medical director of the Louisiana Perinatal Quality Collaborative and Pregnancy Associated Mortality Review for the Louisiana Department of Health. In this role, she leads initiatives in the state of Louisiana to improve birth outcomes for all birthing persons in Louisiana and eliminate the black-white disparity gap. She has testified before Congress and led congressional briefings to inform on the drivers of maternal mortality as well as legislative policy to improve maternal health and eliminate the black-white disparity gap. And she was an invited speaker for the White House Maternal Health Day of Action. She has also served in several local and national leadership roles and received many accolades for her clinical, academic, and community service contributions. Dr. Gillespie Bell, welcome to our show today. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're so welcome. We are so excited to have you here. I can't say enough how much I appreciate everything that you've done and just you being a role model for not only me and the state of Tennessee, but across the country. So can you tell us just a little bit more about your quality improvement journey? Sure. So in 2015, the chair of my department said, uh, Veronica, we want you to lead quality for the women's service line. And I said, okay, well, what does that mean? And he said, well, I'm not exactly sure, but quality seems to be really important. And you are the most organized person I know. So I'm sure you'll go figure it out. And that's what I did. I started looking to whatever resources I could find to figure out what quality metrics we could follow, learned more about the Joint Commission at that time, got involved with the Institute of Healthcare Improvement, otherwise known as IHI, and learned just the principles of quality improvement. And so I started doing, again, following quality metrics at our health system, implementing different bundles. We started with the hemorrhage bundle 
implemented quantification of blood loss. And again, this is back in 2015, surgical site infection bundles, and, and just really boots on the ground, learning how to do quality improvement. I realized in 2018, um, three years into that, that, that journey of in quality improvement, that there were actually programs around the country that had master's uh, level uh, training for quality improvement. And so I decided um, to enroll at Johns Hopkins and completed their Master of Applied Science in Patient Safety and Healthcare Quality in May 2020. During that time, I was asked to be part of the faculty for the Louisiana Perinatal Quality Collaborative. We launched in August 2018 and I became faculty in July right before we launched. And then in 2019, I was asked to be the medical director. So I really, really boots on the ground and having that empirical knowledge, as well as the educational academic background, really, really got involved in quality improvement. Great. I will say you have been very busy, but in a very positive way. Speaking to the LAPQC, um, the Louisiana Perinatal Quality Collaborative, can you talk a little about the successes that you've had as medical director and just being involved with that organization? Sure. As I mentioned, we launched in August of 2018, and our first initiative was reducing maternal morbidity, where we focused on reducing severe maternal morbidity from hemorrhage by 20%, as well as hypertension by 20%, and narrowing the black-white disparity gap. We have always looked to do improvement through a lens of equity, even when it was very difficult and those conversations were not popular at the time when we launched, but that was part of our goal as well. We started with 31 birthing facilities. We today have 47 of the 48 birthing facilities in the state as part of the Perinatal Quality Collaborative. And through that first initiative, which again launched in August of 2018 and ended of May of 2020, we saw a reduction in severe maternal morbidity from hemorrhage by 35% and by 49% for Black women and then a reduction in severe maternal morbidity from hypertension by 12%. We did see a slight uptick in severe maternal morbidity from hypertension in Black women by 8%. I do think that COVID had a part to play in that, not just in challenging our structures and processes, but also COVID seeming to be related to a factor for hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. And of course, uh, just like the rest of the country, we had a higher rate of covid amongst our Black population in Louisiana, because we did see an improvement of 20% prior to uh, 2020 when COVID hit. And so we've seen those successes in terms of our numbers and seeing uh, improvement in severe maternal morbidity. But I would say for me, the biggest success is just the fact that we launched, we had 31 hospitals that agreed to participate And our hospitals have taken this journey with us. And again, we've grown to 47 hospitals and they just that relationship between the PQC and our hospitals, seeing that grow, seeing it change, seeing how they began to trust us and continue to trust us as experts in this area is really that is to me the biggest success. Tremendous work. 47 out of 48 hospitals across the state. That's amazing. And to have them all have the buy in and the enthusiasm about quality improvement, because I know we both know that sometimes can be the less enthusiastic part of the day for most. Can you speak a little bit more to how you were able to engage with the different hospital systems and them still be 
enthusiastic in participating given everything going on and the different types of hospitals in the state? Sure. So I will admit that legislatively, our level three and level four hospitals are supposed to participate with the PQC that's written into the, our uh, former maternal levels of care, but participation was not defined at that time. And so hospitals could very well sign their name on a piece of paper and never report data to us, never answer our phone calls and never interact with us. So even with that legislative push, that really was not enough to get hospitals to really participate in the way participation has to happen for quality improvement. I do think that it's a combination of reasons as to why we have gotten so many hospitals to participate. I think from an external factor, we had the Joint Commission Perinatal Standards that were published, and I was a part of that committee that helped to develop those standards. And we had other external factors of, of, of other organizations, CMS, that were having more of a focus on perinatal outcomes. And so we leveraged a lot of those external factors and external carrots and sticks, if you will, to be able to show our hospitals, hey, we know that these are all outcomes that we're trying to accomplish for various reasons. We are here to give you the tools to get there. And so we never have made our hospitals feel like we're going to write them a ticket or we're going to punish them or that we would shame them in some type of way that we were really here to help them and to help them go from where they are, meet them where they are and get to that ultimate level of, of, of improved outcomes. That support is so key to getting participation. I definitely understand. And it seems like you had a very thoughtful approach. And that's very important. As far as specifically hospital administrators, we often talk here about the inability to engage or get the attention of hospital administrators, as well as the hospital backing the quality project to be a priority. How did you guys handle that in Louisiana and any recommendations? So I think that's a great question. As I mentioned, I was doing quality improvement in my hospital before the PQC even launched. And so I think that experience of, of working with executives and administrators and helping them to understand the value of quality improvement, I think has helped in the way we approach it as a PQC. I think when we speak to executives, we have to understand what their goals are. Yes, they want to see improved outcomes, but they also want to see what does it cost? How much is it going to cost? What is the bottom line? And so I think once we were able to show how when you improve quality, you do have imp you have cost savings that come from that, as well as, as I mentioned, these external factors of you need to do this so that you can keep your license. You need to do this so that you can stay joint commission accredited. There are other external federal and outside of the state entities that are looking at these outcomes, and we are here to help you get to where you need to be. I think making that that talk and that approach, I think, has been very, very helpful. We are a team also that we have a lot of high touches with our EQC teams in the birthing facilities. And uh, prior to the pandemic, we would, would do a little roadshow and we would go to the hospitals, we called it a listening session, where we would meet with the PQC teams and we would invite the CNO, we would invite the CEO 
so that we could discuss how they were performing and where we were going as a PQC across the state. Also, I think one of the other things that helps a lot, when we had our PQC teams do their pledge, we had them to define different roles. It comes from a model from AIM. It's a different type of AIM, not our Alliance for Innovation and Maternal Health, but a different AIM. It's called the CAST. And so the CAST is thinking about that champion who is the person that's the rah-rah, wants to see this happen, who is the agent, who is going to actually be doing the change, who is your sponsor. And that sponsor is the same as the CEO, the CNO, maybe the chair of the department. It's that leader that has the authority to reinforce the change. And from the AIM model, they have found that if you do not have that sponsor with authority, or sorry, if you do have that sponsor with authority, 60 to 80 percent of your success depends on that, having that ability to say, this is what we're going to do and these are the consequences of not doing it. And so, again, we have our teams to define those champions, agents, the sponsor, and then the target is just the person is the other. That's the T of the cast. But that's thinking about who this change is happening to and making sure you're very thoughtful in how you are changing or thinking how the change is going to affect them. But we have our teams to find define those roles, identify who that person is going to be. And so I think just that approach of them having that structure and then our process of how we engage executives, I think, is really what has made us successful. And that pledge is done with each project or just at the beginning of the engagement with the collaboration? You know, we really do it at the beginning of every initiative because the cast or who that who that champion is, who that agent is, who the sponsor is may change depending on what our initiative is. So as we as we mentioned, and I know that you're well aware, we have a lot of initiatives going on. And so the team that may be doing, for example, our safe birth initiative, which is lowering the C-section rate, may not be the same team that's doing the gift initiative, which is improving breastfeeding rates. And so we really have our teams identify those individuals at the beginning of each of the initiatives. I want to step back. You mentioned the disparity lens that you put on your projects, which I think is amazing, definitely in line with what I feel like the entire nation is in a movement to do for maternity care. Can you give pointers on making that successful? Because it sounds like it was very successful in many projects for you. And then also talk a little bit about how the hospitals first received that and then going through the project and keeping them motivated in that way. Yes. So I'm going to I'm actually going to start from the end of your question. So how did the hospitals first receive it? So I mentioned in the beginning that we were moving with a lens of equity when it was not very popular. So when we had our second learning session and this was in August of 2018, excuse me, October of 2018, we decided we were going to make that learning session all about health equity. We asked our teams to do the implicit association test so they would be aware of their implicit bias. We had already started getting into some definitions, but this was the learning session where we were going to really get into the definitions and really talk about health disparities and really unpack it. And so we started the day with a panel. I was one of the panelists and we were just giving basic information, the difference in equality and equity and what implicit bias is and how that's different than explicit bias and racism and, and all of these terms. And two of our hospital teams felt offended by the conversation and they left in the middle of the presentation, not even during the break, but in the middle of the presentation. 
And so as a PQC team, as a leadership of the PQC, we had to make a decision. Are we going to back off because clearly we are offending people or people are not ready for this conversation? Or are we going to move forward and press the gas? And we made the decision to press the gas and keep moving in that direction. And we really have kept that commitment the entire time. Part of, I think, what has made us successful is, again, we try to meet people where they are. Once they were able to take their defenses down, and I think, again, because of our approach about what implicit bias is and how it forms, then I think we were able to do better at engaging. I think when you start having conversations about racism and about disparities and bias, I think that a lot of individuals obviously are going to be uncomfortable. We have to be, we have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable, but I think there is also a fear that we are going to be calling out instead of calling in. And so we have made a real conscious effort to make sure we were calling in. And again, we leveraged external things that were happening around us. We leveraged the death of George Floyd. We leveraged the fact that when COVID-19 uh, started happening and, and Louisiana was one of the first states to start stratifying their data, we leveraged the fact that Black individuals were dying at a rate higher than that of white individuals. And so we kept having those conversations about implicit bias and structural racism and understanding that that is going to be at the root of every disparity. So that was at the root of maternal mortality and maternal morbidity and COVID-19 mortality. And just, again, to continually have those conversations um, with our teams so that now it is expected that we're going to talk about disparities. I think one of the other things that we've done to try to make it keep it at the top of mind for our our teams, we do, as I mentioned, we're a high touch PQC. And so we do a 30, 60, 90 day chat with our teams every quarter. And so what that is, is we get on Zoom with them. And we determine, okay, this is the aim of the initiative. This is your individual aim, okay, of where you're trying to get to in relationship to the overall aim. What can we do in 30 days to get there? What can we do in 60 days? What can we do in 90 days? What's going to be a PDSA? And then what are we going to do with what we learn from the PDSA? So we really, really help them through the quality improvement process. Through that, though, in the goals, we always, always have a health equity patient partnership goal so that our teams always have something that they are working on in regards to equity. And I would say the last thing that we've done, and this is part of the sustainability of the initiatives as well, is that we created a birth ready designation. And so with this birth ready designation, there are five different parts to it and domains that our hospitals have to do to get designated. But one of those domains is in the area of health equity and patient partnership. And so our consistency and constant I think acknowledgement that you cannot have quality without equity is that I think embedded into our hospital teams and and that then has them to continue to work in a space of, of equity. Speaking to your hospital designation system, which sounds great and I believe will be a template for many other states, how has that been received? By the hospital teams, has it been motivating? Is there great connection with other state organizations to put them on the platform that they well deserve for getting that designation? Yes, the designation has been more motivating than I thought it would ever be. The designation is 
really it's, it's just our way of saying thank you to our teams for doing all the work that they have done. And then again, rewarding them and helping them to sustain the gain when they're moving through new initiatives. We don't give any money. They don't pay for the designation. But honestly, we're still working to develop our logo. So we don't even have a banner to give them. But just the fact that we can say you're birth ready designated, it shows up on our website. It has been hugely, hugely motivating for our for our hospitals and our hospital teams. And you know, to answer your question before, it's been a way to get our executives involved. We within the Department of Health, we have a great media team. So there was a whole media release around the first uh, set of designations when we did our first round and it even got picked up by USA Today. And so for hospitals that did not get designated, those executives were definitely listening and definitely engaged and wanting to know, well, why didn't we get designated and what do we have to do? And I think as hospitals, we are used to having designations for a ton of different things. And so it's been hugely motivating. It's been huge to get everybody engaged. And I think our hospitals and our PQC teams in particular have really appreciated getting the, the recognition and the honor and being able to share that with their community. And I'd imagine the patients that would as well appreciate knowing that and almost would assume that they feel comforted by knowing that the, their hospital has been designated as a birthing-friendly hospital by the state. So switching gears just a little bit, I wanted to talk to you more about a physician being involved in quality care, matern- maternal health quality care specifically, and what advice you would give for someone who is eager to get involved. So I would say after having gotten my master's from Johns Hopkins, and again, it's in their public health school, it really made me look at care delivery in a completely different way. So I feel like every physician, every healthcare provider, if you can't go and get a public health degree, you should at least take some public health courses because it really makes you, again, think about healthcare in a different way. It helps you understand the barriers, the structural barriers to achieving health outcomes, the importance of making systemic changes to improve health outcomes for your community, for society. So that's the first thing I would say. And then for those that are interested in getting specifically into quality improvement, There are a ton of resources available as far as educating yourself. There's so many structures in place that were not in place when I first started on this journey. And just, I think, also understanding that when you do quality improvement, it is public health. So you're not just improving for one patient or one individual. You're improving for your entire hospital community and the patients that that attend your hospital And that in itself, at least for me, has been motivating. And so if you are a physician and you're interested in getting in quality and getting involved in quality improvement, I would say just do it. And I would echo that, but I may be a little biased (laughs) in my experience as well. And I'd imagine that you have great turnout from your nursing staff and other support staff when it comes to quality improvement. Could you speak to that as well? Yeah, I think about, again, in my days when I first started doing quality improvement, I took a very dyadic approach. So every quality improvement initiative I did, it was led by me and it was led by a nurse, whether that be the nurse for infection prevention, because we're talking about surgical site infection, 
or it be a labor and delivery nurse or the unit director because we're talking about implementing the best practices for postpartum hemorrhage. And so I think we have to always remember that we are a care team. And so I, again, have been very intentional to make sure that the improvement work that I do, I always have a nurse that is leading the work with me. And we as physicians are arrogant, so we will not take directions from a nurse. <laughs> That's just who we are, unfortunately. And then for me, leading quality improvement efforts, I can certainly tell the nurses what to do and they will do it because I'm the doctor, but they will do it begrudgingly and not do it well. And it's unfair. I don't understand the nurse's workflow. I don't understand the the nurse load, the, the workload. And so that's why it's really important when we're doing the quality improvement that we have both that nurse and physician dyad to help lead the, the improvement. And then once we have those leaders, then we have to look multidisciplinary. Very few times in obstetrics is the care that, I, that is being provided by an obstetrician in a vacuum. If we're talking about hypertension, if we're talking about, it, about hemorrhage, anesthesia is involved in that. And so you want to have someone from anesthesia at the table as well. And so, again, it's thinking about this dyadic approach as well as the multidisciplinary approach. And I think that's one of the reasons that the nurses, um, as I've done quality improvement, have been so willing to engage with me. And I think I value nurses and I value their role and always make them feel that our importance is equal. So I think that that has also been very helpful. And I've done a lot in terms of doing drills and doing training and helping in nursing fairs and and just really being a partner to the nurses so that we are doing this quality improvement together. You know, oftentimes we hear from our hospital teams, and I'm sure it's heard across the country, and you touched on it a little bit, about sometimes the pushback from the physicians as far as participation. Sometimes they're just deep-rooted in their personal practice and don't want to change, or maybe the culture is not accepting for them for the change that they need. What advice could you give with engaging with those physicians or other healthcare providers, it could be a midwife, a nurse practitioner, that maybe giving hesitancy to change for the greater good of the initiative? So I would say the first thing you have to do is assess your culture. Culture eats strategy for lunch. So it doesn't matter what, how great you've planned out your quality improvement initiative. If you're not in a culture that supports quality improvement, then all of your efforts are going to fail. And that really starts from the top down. You have to have and engage a leader that is going to, again, back to that sponsorship, that's going to support that quality improvement change and support the, support the culture of quality improvement. Now, that culture involves having psychological safety where we're not naming and blaming and we're looking at issues and problems as systems, systems of care that need to change. Understanding that when we are putting initiatives into place and we're doing improvement that we have to do PDSAs, we have to do small tests of change, and we have to do our plan, do, study, act before we start to before we start to expand that change. So again, a leader that understands the process of quality improvement. So I think that's the first part. I think the other part, especially with physicians, and this is something that I did not understand when I first started doing quality improvement, is that change is an emotional response or it elicits an emotional response, I should say. And when you have pushback, 
and uh, you have resistance, that's part of the change process. That doesn't mean that you're doing something wrong. It doesn't mean that you've messed up or that you didn't plan enough. Resistance is part of the change. I remember when I was going, when I was working with my hospital, when I first started doing quality improvement and we had worked on quantification of blood loss and I got the nurses on board and they were so excited and they were like, we're going to do this. And I came to my physician group at our meet at our physician meeting. I was like, oh, guess what? We're going to start doing going to do quantification of blood loss. I've worked with the nurses. All you have to do is just agree to what the number is. There's nothing that's going to change in your workflow. And I thought they were going to throw rotten tomatoes and eggs at me. And I, I couldn't understand it. I was like, didn't I? I did. I did all this planning. What is wrong? And as I have now matured and, and grown and done, you know, been educated in the quality improvement op process, I now understand, again, that resistance is part of change. When you're asking somebody to change, you're asking them to go from what they are doing, what they have been knowing, what they have known to be correct, to change to something different. So you are moving from a, a level of comfort to uncomfort from something you're very sure about to I don't know what that is. This is something new. And you just told them that what you've been doing for the last X number of years is wrong and you have to do something else. So all of that brings about basically the stages of grief. And so you have to understand that and understand that that, again, that that resistance is part of it. And you have to allow them to grieve the the, the change, but you have to keep stay connected and work with them through the change. I think, again, as you support individuals through the change, they will change with you. You need the sponsor because that sponsor is the one that has the authority to make them change. But if you want the change to stick and you want it to have less resistance, you want to be supportive and understanding of all of those things through the change. Now, I will say that we have naysayers. Now, everybody knows Everybody listening will know who your naysayer is because they naysay about every single thing under the sun. They are that person that doesn't matter how wonderful something is going to be. They have something negative to say of why it's not going to work and what they don't like about it. That person is the person that you need to bring to the table when you're planning out your change. First of all, they will they are going to point out to you every reason of why it's not going to work. And that allows you to troubleshoot before you actually implement the change. And because you've given them a role in the actual change, they are now bought into the change. And so they will be less likely to naysay in front of the group, which will then get other people to naysay. They're, remember, people are changing, so they're already uncomfortable. So now you have this person that introduces doubt. And so now they're really going to be uncomfortable. So if you have that person involved in the change process and in the planning, they're less likely to be vocal about their concerns because they've already had a chance to voice that and they've been a part of what that change is going to be. And in addition, if they're going with the project, then it's more likely that everyone else will join in because the naysayer is in agreement. That may be part of our pledge, another letter in the acronym, (laughs) naysayer of the T just to ensure success. Yes. So you mentioned also, I mentioned as well in the introduction that you are part of the state maternal mortality committee. How have you seen the impact of your PQC work on that maternal mortality that you've seen in the state as well, sitting on the other committee? 
Yes, as you as you mentioned, I am the medical director of our um, medical maternal mortality review committee. We are called the Pregnancy Associated Mortality Review, and we review all deaths that occur at the time of pregnancy up to one year of the end of pregnancy. And we are a multidisciplinary group. We have physicians, we have nurses, midwives, we have a patient, we have addiction specialists, violence prevention specialists, just truly multidisciplinary. And really, it is more of the MMRC affecting the PQC other than the more than the other way around. So it really is that data to action arm where we are looking on the MMRC at the data part of what is driving maternal morbidity and mortality, what is happening not only in the hospital, but what's happening in the environment and what could we have done to prevent each of these deaths. And we have a long list of recommendations that are targeted towards healthcare providers, health professionals, community, social local agencies, policymakers, insurance and payers, just really all aspects of society. And as a matter of fact, we just finished, completed our report for the review of the 2017 through 2019 deaths, and that's going to be published in the next week or so. And then through the PQC, we take that data that we find from our mortality review and we take those recommendations and that really informs the actions that informs what initiatives we need to focus on based on what we know is driving maternal mortality in our state. Now, I think it's going to be a while before we see the impact of the PQC on the maternal mortality part. And our maternal mortality, the review process is about two years behind. And what I mean by that is it's 2022 and we're now reviewing the 2020 deaths. It takes about two years to get all the medical, well, to abstract the charts, basically, to identify the deaths, confirm that they were pregnant and that that a death occurred, pull all the medical records, police reports, whatever, uh, coroner's reports, whatever information we can find to do the review and then complete the review itself. So I think we're going to, it's going to be a while before we see that, that impact of the PQC improving those pregnancy related deaths. So I know the maternal mortality, pregnancy related mortality committee is one partnership that the PQC has. Can you speak to other state organizations, state government partnerships that you have and the success you've had with those partnerships? Sure. I think we have the benefit of being located in our state Department of Health. We're in the Bureau of Family Health under the Office of Public Health within the Louisiana Department of Health. And I think that that structure gives us a lot of support and it gives us a lot of visibility with other organizations. And so we have partnerships with Medicaid, with our managed care organizations, with our hospital association, with the March of Dimes, with the National Birth Equity Collaborative, really a lot of entities that are touching the maternal child health space, both in the state and nationally. We, again, I think because we're in the Department of Health, I in particular am often called to testify for state legislation and give data on what we're seeing within our hospitals from a PQC standpoint, as well as what we're seeing from a maternal mortality review um, standpoint. So really a lot of integration um, and a a lot of work with just many different organizations. As a, a matter of fact, I had a phone call prior to the podcast today with one of our community organizations, and we are partnering on how we message to hospitals the roles of doulas 
because we are now working on a doula registry to have doulas covered by insurance. But understanding that coverage is just one part of that, we need to make an environment in the hospital that is accepting and friendly and open and welcoming to doulas. And so, again, just one way we're partnering with a community organization to work on that messaging. So there's just many facets of collaboration that that we have going on throughout the state. What advice would you give to PQCs or hospital systems that are looking to engage and maybe they're starting off or not having the success that they hoped with engaging with the other state organizations for support? Well, the first thing I would say is one of the things that I've already said, because it's the, it's the thing that I wish somebody had told me is that resistance is part of change. And so understand that when you're changing things, it doesn't mean that you've messed up because people don't like the change. That's just part of the process. So I would say that always, always remember that improvement is change, but not all change is improvement. So you have to measure. And then just remember to meet people where they are. Nobody wakes up and says they want somebody to have a bad outcome. They just don't always have the roadmap of how to get there. To that point, we know that it takes 17 years for something to go from translational research to being put into our practices. If you use quality improvement and quality improvement science, that gets reduced down to three. And so I think always remembering that as a PQC or a hospital that's working on quality improvement and always bringing that message forward to those who are trying to improve, I think gives you leverage to guide them. And then again, as we've seen with our PQC, you're seen as an asset and not an obstacle. No greater words to end the podcast on for today. Again, I can't say enough how appreciative you are for your PQC and the exemplary work that you've done, as well as the admirable leadership that you've had in both medical director of the PQC and the Mortality Review Committee. So we will definitely have our eyes on you and the great things to come. What do you see for the future of your PQC now that you've done all this great work? I really thank you for for that. I I just see us growing and expanding. We're going to be expanding in our initiatives. We're already planning out what 2023 and 2024 is going to look like. And so I just see us continuing to, to partner with our hospitals to do quality improvement and implement those best practices. I see us continuing to inform policy. And most of all, I see great outcomes for the women of Louisiana. Well, thank you, Dr. Gillespie-Bell, for joining us today, taking time out of your busy schedule to share. And we do appreciate you again for joining us. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, presented by TIPQC. TIPQC is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Do you have ideas for a future guest or topic or even have a question you would like answered on upcoming episodes? Visit www.tipqc.org, that's T-I-P-Q-C.org, and click on podcast to submit suggestions and questions to our podcast team. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to be the first to know when new episodes are available and find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to stay in the loop with our active projects and other relevant news relating to perinatal health in Tennessee.